Thank you, Dr. Rai. There was a time when I was younger than Dr. Rai. So uh, my talk is really about the future, so bear with me in this talk. Um, I'm very privileged to give this talk, and I thank Mort and Rick for inviting me to do this. Uh, I have to thank my Mayo colleagues who were very helpful in giving this talk, and also Jennifer Brown, um, who uh, helped me in uh, constructing this talk. So there are challenges um, with this conversation. I would put them in two. What else do we learn as we counsel our patients? Do we drill deeper in evaluating the biology and prognostics? And what is the best way forward then to treat young, fit, CLL patients? And there's a number of areas that I'll cover there uh, that are listed for you. Now, um, what is a young CLL? Who, who thinks young is under the age of 65? Raise your hand. Who thinks young is under the age of 70? It's under 70. Dr. Rai is unimpeachable, and I have a quote from his website saying that uh, relatively younger patients, less than 65 versus elderly, older than 65. I take a little offense to that, but. So just briefly and tangentially, what's the outlook for a young CLO patient? The median age is 71 to 72, but one third will be under 65. The biology and prognostics tend to be more adverse for young patients. Uh, they usually have a higher tumor burden. Sometimes they'll have unfavorable prognostics like unmutated IGVH. But if you have a young patient with good prognostics, we found and published that it's actually similar to older patients. So having said that, do we need a different approach to evaluating the risk for a 17P patient in 2018? Now, just as a reminder, for untreated patients, we see 17P, P53 abnormalities in a minority of patients presenting for upfront therapy, and uh, their outcome is terrible with CIT. You've heard plenty of that. They rarely achieve CR or, or a durable CR with CIT. Unfortunately, for treated patients, that goes up a lot to 23 to 44%, likely under the pressure of CIT. And uh, here's my first bit of advice. When you have a 17P patient, you need to take into account other prognostics listed there for you, including IGVH, deletion 11Q, and of course the mutational status. Now, these are prognostic, but not necessarily targetable. However, there are other factors that have now been elucidated. Notch, SF3V1, Berg 3 these are all associated with adverse outcomes, maybe more common in 17P. They are potentially actionable, although we have not really proved that yet. Complex karyotype is an interesting new finding uh, conventional cytogenetics induced by CPG where they're abnormal, they may be more frequent in 17P patients. We'll come back to that. So would you treat a 17P patient in early stage? I think that's a conversation we should have. Uh, the answer's really, uh, you know, the, the data we have right now would suggest otherwise. Early clinical trials using single agent chemo or combination were not positive. This was in the 1980s and 90s. And then there's an interesting um, collusion. Oh, that's a terrible word. Um, uh, there was a, a cooperation between uh, Tate Shanefeld and CONTAM, MD Anderson Mayo Clinic, where they actually found indolent patients with 17P. Uh, and they have a variety of parameters listed there for you on your slide that uh, if they're within three years of diagnosis and they have these particular parameters, they may actually do quite well. And um, in this figure, from that paper, you can see the 65% overall survivorship for their cohort 
Um, and what they also uh, found was clone size effect, which is in the bottom left of your slide. The more abnormal nuclei for 17P, the worse the outcome was. And they came up with, if you will, with a, a primordial model for 17P. Uh, you can see three subgroups in the bottom right where if they have a rise stage greater than one, unmutated IGVH, and over 25% 17P, these folks do not do well. Now this was a precursor to more modern models, and I'm just gonna show you uh, this one, which we think is particularly utilitarian. This is the CLL International Prognostic Index, or CLPI. Uh, thousands of patients who are chemo-naive and then went on to CIT treatment, and um, uh, many, many prognostic factors were looked at, including the novel mutations as well as more traditional ones. Five factors came out as being uh, helpful in a multivariable analysis, and you'll note that uh, TP53 uh, is one of the five, and because its hazard ratio is so high with outcome, it gets a score of four. The prognostic score can be anywhere from zero to 10. Now this figure shows you something I think also that's helpful. Using this approach, you can, go, you can divide early stage patients or, or more advanced into low, intermediate, high, and very high, and there are treatment algorithms for this, and they're really based on the five-year overall survivorship, which is um, in white on the right-hand side. You can see it varies anywhere from 23 to 93%. Now we've looked at this, and actually this was in the original paper published in Lancet Oncology, over 800 patients in our Mayo court. These are patients with very close to diagnosis. Again, using the clip, you can see the four cohorts. And in the table in red, you see that we also, um, although this was not designed for treatment-free uh, intervals, we looked at it that way. And you can see that the high and the very high have markedly reduced rates of not being treated compared to the low risk and intermediate risk. So it can be helpful uh, even in early stage and culling out the more risky patients. So is there a case for therapy in early stage? There's a no case scenario, the lack of data in the early intervention. There is a CL trial, a 12 trial run by the high risk early stage disease using an earlier model. And I have to mention that we always need to remember to use the IWCL 2018 criteria in making a decision to treat any patient. There is a yes case scenario the CLPI can be used to define and detect these high and very high risk. As I said, it was originally designed for overall survivorship, but it can detect time to first treatment, and it is information that you can use in counseling your patient. There are some other issues I don't have time to go over in great detail. For patients with 17P, clonal evolution may advance over time faster than other individuals. Increasing immune deficits over time may accumulate due to B-cell clonal burden. Uh, the CLB cell is uniquely capable as a stealth cell of, of delivering knockout blows to T cells and natural killer cells. So with that in mind, Samir Parikh and I have uh, conjured up a clinical early stage high risk trial at Mayo Clinic where we risk stratify using the CLPI. They're subdivided into low intermediate versus high and very high. For the high and very high, they're randomized one to one to either a calibrutinib or a calibrutinib obina for a total of two years. If they're MRD positive, they stay on therapy. If they're MRD negative, they're followed every six months, and the low and intermediate risk um, are observed. Our objectives here are listed here for you. Uh, basically, we're looking at MRD negative complete remissions in bone marrow um, and in time to first therapy, a number of secondary endpoints, including quality of life, 
and some key correlative analyses looking at immune function, clonal evolution, and the status of their bone marrow in terms of being able to make um, to be hematopoietically intact. So in summary of this first part of my talk, not all 17P will have immediate adverse outcomes. You need to take that into account when you see a patient. The CLIPI can add more prognostic information for 17P. Remembering that the 17P put patients in at least high-risk category, there are additional prognostic information above just being 17P. And it's useful for consideration of suitability in clinical trials. So in the last half of my talk, I just want to talk about current approaches. This is where I guess the future might come in even in more um, uh, focus in terms of uh, possible addition, new, newer therapies or approaches. So we all agree uh, these are key clinical points. CIT is inappropriate for initial therapy for these patients. The consensus is abrutinib, irrespective of age. And if patients go on to a CR, perhaps you might think of a transplant if there's a suitable donor. But can we discriminate, this is a key question to me, between COL with 17P if they're treatment naive versus relapse refractory? This is a comment from Susan O'Brien's paper in Blood where she updated the phase 1B2 study. Treatment naive 17P five-year survivorship has increased from less than 40% to greater than 80%. Is that true for relapse refractory CLL? Do they benefit as much? You know, the themes uh, that you've heard now a lot in this, this morning, it's all encouraging. Very high, for a single agent of Bruton, a very high overall response. Few CRs, lymphocytosis is common but not a problem and myelosuppression is not necessarily a major feature. No prognostic feature appears to be predictive of poor outcome. But is that true? I would say it is not so true if you look deeply at the data. 17P and P53 mutated patients, in my view, perhaps have lesser responses. And I'm going to review for you a number of papers you've heard about this morning in terms of looking exclusively at 17P patients and critical outcomes. So this is the uh, Bruton of five-year experience reported by Susan O'Brien. And on the left-hand side, you see the genetic subgroups. Note that the 17P subgroup, while, 80, while fairly high for um, relapse refractory, is less than the other genetic subgroups. But I think more importantly, the red arrows show you that the PFS and OS is worse for uh, the 17P patients uh, over time. And in addition, they looked at complex karyotype. I referred to this earlier. If 17P patients have complex karyotype, um, they do worse, both for PFS and OS. So an interesting and I think relatively new finding um, in terms of how we look at our patients. This is the Resonate two and, year, and four year follow-up. The two year follow-up was published recently by Jen Brown. And in her observation, I believe it was quoted as a preliminary observation, if P53 mutation is present along with 17P, you see that blue line and inferior PFS. In John's update at the four-year, there appears to be a diminished outcome for fish in TP53, but perhaps not as significant as earlier. I think this is a very interesting slide. It's actually a visual abstract from the um, Wiesner paper um, published by Ahn in Blood recently, five-year follow-up um, of phase two for treatment naive and relapse refractory. And please note the marked difference between progression-free and TP53 treatment naive versus the relapse refractory. So in conclusion of this part of, of, of this talk, the long-term results do suggest that, uh, particularly the Resonate data, 
that the PFS for, relapse, for deletion 17P relapse refractory is quite inferior, 26 months versus perhaps 50 months. In the resonate and single agent abrutinib 17P with P53 mutation or complex carry type does point out that while the PFS is much better than CIT approaches, it is not as good as other genomic risk groups. So given that it's not curative, the single agent use, and generally shorter in the high-risk groups as I defined for you, what other agents do we have? So the last agent, uh, the, one of the last two agents I want to mention is venetoclax. This is single agent data. Again, you've heard about this, but I just want to uh, sort of summarize that the single agent venetoclax data, the Silvenbauer paper, with all the positive attributes you've seen in the upper part of the slide or heard about, <clears throat> there are issues. Relapses are now documented. We, uh, we have uh, plenty of patients who've relapsed both abrutinib and venetoclax. What are we doing with these people? The drug resistance studies, uh, one interesting one by Herling in the Nature, uh, shows a multiplicity of genetic changes, uh, BTG1, cyclin-dependent kinase 2A and B, and even BRAF and uh, PDL1. So there are some resistant mechanisms emerging with single-agent venetoclax. Now, encouragingly, combination data with venetoclax are um, showing MRD, and I'm just showing this data to emphasize the venetoclax plus rituximab. There's a high level of uh, MRD over 60% at nine months, and the bone marrow MRD was 27%, and that's very encouraging. At the Captivate trial, venetoclax plus abrutinib for naive patients is even more encouraging in terms of MRD, and I emphasize that for a reason that I hope will become clear in a moment. 100% objective response rates, very high MRD after six cycles, and MRD negativity in all complete responding patients. And of course, you've heard about the very exciting data recently published by Kerry Rogers, the IOV data, <coughs> excuse me, where uh, this was for treatment naive patients, and the overall response was 92%, CR rate 42%, six patients with no MRD in the blood or bone marrow, really kind of unheard of uh, in a sense. So. My take-home message from this recent data on venetoclax combinations are that um, it's impressive. It induces CRs and it achieves MRD in both blood and bone marrow. Cannot advance. So let me mention one other um, treatment uh, uh, agent that I think we need to think about for this talk. We need to think about employing the powerful use of graft versus leukemia in our CLL patients. In the CLL3X trial shown here for you, MRD negativity at 12 months was highly prognostic for a reduced relapse rate, 25% versus 80% if the MRD was present at 12 months. 17P patients did as well as others. Now there are reduced intensity conditioning regimens that have significantly reduced early mortality, 50% of all patients um, can achieve MRD negativity, and the long-term survivorship is independent of genomic risk, including 17P. Now, the, the, the newer neighbor on the block is CART therapy, and this is not that encouraging. Not all CL patients respond, but when they do respond with CRs, these are very durable. There are patients who are over seven years now with CART therapy. And the other exciting issue is that abrutinib appears to enhance GVL, graft versus leukemia for both aloe and CART. This is a very powerful tool that we should be exploiting. So what is the answer to, is it time for therapy change? I would say yes, but 
treatment naive may not be as compelling for a change as relapse refractory. Now, there are clearly significant issues. Um, limited trials and follow-up, it's hard to counsel with, uh, with this early stage in our trials. Limited knowledge of outcomes on the novel agent failures. The biology of 17P is troublesome. Uh, the CLB cell is tough enough, but when it has 17P, it seems to facilitate or be associated with clonal evolution and additional mutational events which relate to drug resistance. And as uh, Mitch Smith pointed out earlier, there may be even uh, if these small subclones of 17P, and you'll hear more about this from David's talk, I'm sure, which will emerge eventually with therapy. And also the window of opportunity for disease eradication in uh, 17P patients may be quite narrow. And uh, I don't have time to get into that, but I think it, it, it will prove to be that. So a hypothetical proposal for 17P patients, I would say we need to introduce therapies early on that can induce significant debulking and MRD negative status. At least two cohorts should be considered. Early stage high risk that do not meet IW2818 criteria. And then progressive patients who do meet that criteria, the benefits would theoretically be to minimize clonal evolution and immune dysfunction because we're getting rid of an aggressive clone. Can we accomplish CR and MRD negativity in the young, fit patient who needs therapy? So I don't know that because that's the future talk. Here's one scenario that you could think about. A 17P patient progs on abrutinib. You could either go to a CART trial or you could use the combination venetoclax abrutinib. For the CART trial patients, if they're in complete remission, you could observe. For the combination venetoclax abrutinib, if there's progression, think of a clinical trial or perhaps adding CART at a certain time. For the CR patients, you may want to think about taking them to transplant. I just want to briefly mention and encourage all of you, do go to ASH. There's a phase three trial data coming from the Alliance trial. Jennifer Woich will be presenting this at ASH, and I believe, I believe in a plenary session, will inform us a lot about um, the abrutinib-obina versus abrutinib-obina venatoclax uh, approach. I'm sorry, I, 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 take that, I take that back. This is a phase, phase three trial that is um, about to be activated. Um, and that will be telling us a lot about the doublet versus triplet. The next slide talks about the trial that Jennifer Weich will be presenting. And this is a, a bendamustine rituximab, rituximab brutinib, or brutinib alone. And remember, this does include 17P, and this will be presented, and I think be very interesting. So this is my last slide. What are the future directions uh, in this tough area? I do think we need to further refine just calling a patient 17P. I think that uh, a new definition of high-risk CLL is in order. Uh, identification of critical and actionable molecular pathways may advance the concept of high-risk CLL and its management. And uh, I think that you'll hear a lot more about uh, both at ASH and in upcoming years. I would consider earlier therapies for the right patient and using the Clippy could be helpful. The clinical trials, I think particularly phase three, are needed for doublet versus triplet. But of course, we are now facing a number of phase two and three trials that will uh, be giving us some more important data. But I think the other important aspect is to introduce cellular therapies, particularly CART and the allo-BMT in the right patient at the right time. That will remain a uh, distinct challenge in the future. Thank you for your attention.